Which characters in the nerd world get way too much fanfare? Which characters make you roll your eyes and groan, oh, enough already? We discuss it in episode 87 of the Nerd by Word. Welcome into another exclusive episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, the only podcast that can grade your papers and whip your tukus in Mario Kart simultaneously. Although, with my first point today, I can sense a blue shell incoming. That's right, Dave and I will be presenting our picks for the most overrated characters in nerddom, but first, we're blending the content of our podcast with that of our day job, apparently, in today's... Dave, what off-brand dystopian future are we living in now? I don't know, man, but it is really, uh, it's, it's really angering me to great degrees. Uh, so my new story this week, obviously, is going to have to revolve around um, the Tennessee school district that uh, banned the Holocaust graphic novel Mouse. Uh, so th- this new story has hit all the major outlets. There's almost no point in me just picking or citing one in particular, but I have the uh, the NPR story in front of me regarding uh, this particular uh, news story. And uh, to quote uh, this NPR news story by Joe Hernandez, uh, the 10-member McMinn County School Board in Tennessee voted unanimously earlier this month to remove Mouse by Arch Beagleman from its curriculum and replace it with an alternative which hadn't been decided at the time of the vote. We are here because some people objected to the words and the graphics used in the book, board member Rob Shamblin said during the meeting, according to the minutes posted on the school board's website. Now, apparently, there is, you know, in the in the book, there is a brief uh, moment of uh, nudity as well as a couple of... Uh, spicy words um according to the npr article at issue are eight curse words and the image of a nude woman according to mcminn county schools director lee parkinson parkinson the board discussed censoring the language and imagery it deemed inappropriate but ultimately decided to discard the novel outright Jonathan Pierce, the board member who initiated the vote to remove Mouse from the 8th grade curriculum, said during the meeting that the Holocaust should be taught in schools, but this is not the book to do it. Uh, So here's my reaction to that. Uh, McMinn County School Board, screw you. If there is any medium that is perfect for bringing the Holocaust to uh, a middle school group, it is the format of a graphic novel. And if there is any graphic novel who can that can do so effectively, it is Arch Beagleman's absolute masterpiece, known, of course, for being a Pulitzer Prize winner. This sucker is hugely influential. Uh, and I remember very well the first time I ever wrote uh, read this book. I remember uh, rereading it many, many times. I have it sitting in collected hardback on my bookshelf, and I revisit it frequently. More importantly, now that we get to mix uh, this nerdy uh, podcast with our day job for a moment, uh, my students have very often asked me what my favorite graphic novel or comic book is, since I am of the nerdy persuasion, and Mouse is always number one in that list for me. I frequently recommend it to my students, and yes, we have it in our school library, and our uh, students seek it out. And that is appropriate. I mean, I don't know how else to put it other than to say the only way that we are going to avoid anything like that happening again in, in, in in the future, putting my history teacher hat on for a moment, uh, is to teach our children and our adults, apparently, who need it too, the horrors of the Holocaust. That's the only way that, that we can avoid something like that happening again. It has to ultimately be a cautionary tale. Now, you're sitting over here, McMinn County School Board, and you are telling me that a few curse words in this book are the reason to completely remove it from the curriculum, to which I say I 
challenge you to stand in the hallway of any middle school at any given moment during a class change and listen to the language that the kids hurl at each other at that point. The problem with that particular language is that there is no educational or redeeming value to it. This particular book uses language very specifically to bring a point across. It has literary and educational merit. And I'm unsure what all you're planning on removing from the curriculum because there may or may not be a curse word included when the students that you are removing this from uh, are using much spicier language on a daily basis. I, this, this decision blows my mind on 40 different levels. It absolutely does. I don't know how you can you know, discuss any kind of history from any era without touching on, you know, spicier language or, or gross imagery. I mean, how, how exactly do you plan on teaching, for example, the Spanish Inquisition, I, I might ask? Are we not going to discuss the notion of torture? Because, you know, that's distasteful. How are you going to describe anything uh, war-related? You're not gonna. You're just not gonna discuss that war is horrible. So you know, we we raise a whole generation of students who think when they grow up, it's perfectly fine to go to war. It's a good old fun time. Like there is educational merit in discussing horrible things. Now, the good news to come out of this absolutely despicable and horrible news um, is that people have rallied. Uh, around this graphic novel to a great extent. And as is often the case, when you try to tell people that they're not allowed to read something, they will try to read it in throves. And I'm so glad that the instinct to not let people tell you what you can read is still strong in the American people. Right now, um, Mouse, the, the collected uh, hardback, is on Amazon, number one in biographies and history graphic novels, number one in fiction satire, and number two in United States biographies. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Overall, as of this recording, uh, it is number three in the top 100 books on Amazon. So um, this, is, this is at least one good thing. It is even temporarily out of stock on Amazon.com right now. So I fully support people flocking to this incredibly important literary Pulitzer Prize winning work that, that brings the Holocaust home in, in ways that many other books fail to do. It is a masterpiece. Uh, it should uh, be at least, at the very least, it should be present in, in libraries for students to check out. But hey, you know, if the school library is now going to be a place of horrible censorship, uh, I recommend the public library where you still can find stuff like this. Chris, I apologize for my eight-minute ramble, but this one ran all over me in about 40 different ways. No, no, not at all. And, you know, in the interest of, you know, keeping a, a, a certain level of anonymity with regards to which specific school district we teach for and all this stuff, uh, I say all that to say this, is this, this news story hits home on so many different levels on, on, for so many different reasons. Um, and like, it was, it, it's like, unfortunately, so unsurprising that a school board that has no experience classroom teaching, working in a school setting for them to make decisions for everyone else, for, for teachers, for administration, for students, not having any experience in the educational realm themselves simply because they have money and influence and gravitas in the community around them. Um, I think you and I have the same person in mind when I'm saying all these things, but it's, it's just absolutely maddening and sickening to me that the, these individuals who, uh, for, for lack of a better term, don't know what the f they're talking about and they make all those decisions for everybody else. I mean, there this is this is a microcosm of what is happening throughout the country with the buzzword of critical race theory and of so many people being concerned uh, or overly guilty with past writings of history. So we're rewriting history books to exclude real facts and real things that happened and people that were hurt and killed 
uh, in the interest of not upsetting the feelings of the overwhelmingly white majority. It's just, it's, it's an absolute travesty and a miscarriage of justice that has, has been probably the most troubling thing when it comes to, you know, my speculation on working in, in education. And it, it is, it is one of the things that I wake up with every morning and, and have to, you know, take into consideration, like, it's, it's just a frustrating thing to have to continue to battle is all the thoughts and opinions from people who are not qualified to have opinions like this just because they have their own agendas that they're carrying in. And I'm, I'm glad to see the outpouring of support here, but um, it's, it's increasingly frustrating. It is also, um, to, to put on my education hat for a moment, it's also educationally unsound. Uh, even even just from personal experience, you learn very quickly as a teacher that the way to bring any subject to life um, and, and the way to ha- help students connect with a subject is to, for crying out loud, do not talk down to them. Kids, especially middle schoolers, have the world's greatest BS detector they will yep. immediately know when you're talking down to them. They will immediately know when you're omitting something from the discussion. They smell it from a mile away. And this is the point then where the trust that you're trying to build between a school, between a teacher and its students, that that's when that trust becomes violated because they sense that there is something wrong in, in what you are presenting, that you're being disingenuous, uh, that you are omitting facts, that you are talking down to them, and, and then that trust is broken. And, and so, you know, good luck regaining that, that trust that you just lost. You know what I mean, Chris? I think for me, ever since critical race theory became this newsworthy buzzword, imagine going to the doctor and telling them that you are ill or you're suffering from something, but you refuse to tell them the side effects or any of the symptoms that you're suffering. That's teaching American history with excluding things that a certain segment of the population want to exclude because they don't want to hurt people's feelings. But you're erasing the true pain and the hurt and, and, and the discrimination of, of Black people, of Latinx people, of LGBTQ people, of Jewish people, you're erasing all of these facts, facts and things that happened because you don't want to hurt the feelings of the white majority. And it, it just imagine going to the doctor and be like, hey, I've been throwing up. I'm running 105 temperature. Um, oh, wait, no, you didn't tell them any of those things. And then this is how we got here as a country. But we refuse to look back on our past and and become and look at it with authentic, authenticity so we can learn from our mistakes and do better. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we could talk about this particular issue ad nauseum because it's really <laughs> at the intersection of, of nerddom and, and education yeah. and, and what an intersection it is sometimes. Um, I, I think my final assessment here is just that I, I'm, I'm always hesitant anytime uh, somebody comes to the table with the notion of censorship, particularly censorship of literature. Um, and, 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 you know, even the fact that they voted to exclude it um, is egregious. I think it would have been even more egregious if somebody would basically go in there with a Sharpie into all their copies of mouse and like start covering stuff up or something. I, I think the whole thing is, is just in, incredibly distasteful and I just, I'm continuously disappointed in, in our society. Uh, I think is what it comes down to. I thought we were better than this. All right, Chris, it looks like you have some snowy white news for us today. Yeah, so Emmy Award-winning actor Peter Dinklage has made his stance quite clear when it comes to the upcoming Snow White live-action remake and its portrayal of individuals with dwarfism. Dinklage made the following comments on Mark Maron's WTF podcast, quote, I was a little taken aback when they were proud to cast a Latina actress as Snow White. You're still telling the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Take a step back and look at what you're doing there. It makes no sense to me. You're progressive in one way, referring to the Latina actress, and you're still making that effing backwards story about seven dwarfs living in a cave together. What the F are you doing, man? Have I done nothing to advance the cause for my soapbox? End quote. 
Disney retroactively stated that they would, quote, rethink the characters, causing other actors coveting the roles to become quite furious. Dylan Postel, perhaps known uh, best known as Hornswoggle the Leprechaun from his days in WWE, stated that he was, quote, begging Disney for the role. Uh, Katrina Kemp, who appeared in the Netflix series Glow, said that the situation is more complicated than that than what Disney is making it out to be. And writing the characters out wholesale does more harm than good. Personally, though, my favorite comments came from stand-up comedian Brad Williams, who said, quote, they're touting the progressiveness. They're touting that they have a Latinx Snow White, which is great, but we're still doing the dwarf thing, you know? So he's right. But at the same time, I'm torn because it's like, yes, it's mildly offensive. But at the same time, I kind of need the work. So I'm kind of hoping for acting gigs, you know? That's why I'm a stand-up comic but I can get more work for myself and not have to worry about other people telling the story. But yeah, I think there's ways to fix it. I think there's ways you can still do a progressive Snow White and not offend the dwarves, like make Snow White end up with one of the dwarves. How about that? I mean, she goes for a prince who made out with her while she was legally dead. I mean, that's kind of creepy, right? End quote. In all seriousness, it's not an easy solution to arrive at, but a much needed discussion that must be had. Your thoughts, Dave? Yeah, th- this this one is is uh, incredibly complex, and I don't really feel like I'm necessarily the best person or the most qualified person to 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 really discuss what you know what the community of people with, that you know have dwarfism need in, in in this kind of movie. You know, I know I grew up with these these brothers Grimm stories, and that, you know they're hundreds of years old, and it is obvious you know that there are things in there that. Um, would would benefit greatly from updating and i know you know the comment was made you know in jest but you know the fact that princes have a tendency of making out with legally dead slash sleeping individuals is like really creepy to begin with you know especially (laughs) since you don't even really know these people so uh, are there things that need to be updated here absolutely and i think the best the absolute best thing they can do with this is at this point you know as far as disney is concerned is that they just need to sit down with people you know from this community and have an open and honest discussion and some creative input come into what exactly would be the best you know, route to take? How can you retell the story while still, you know, updating some of the more problematic areas of it? I think that's probably my take. The best thing you can do is just talk to the people directly affected and see, you know, how to avoid being offensive and wallowing in stereotypes. Yeah, I think uh, I think for the most part, what I've seen of the live action remakes, I've not seen all of them, but I think most of them that I've seen have done a pretty good job of updating. Um, I particularly like the Cinderella one. I thought that was really well done. So I I think it would be right in line with that to make it a much needed update and just make it whatever it needs to be so it is not offensive to the people that are you know whose stories are being told here so i think that's that's absolutely the best way to do it um you know i think there was a lot of in in the article that i read from the daily mail it was a lot of um kind of envy uh towards peter dinklage they regularly quoted that he made 1.2 million dollars per episode for game of thrones so there's a little bit of uh you know, know, envious behavior there from the other actors. But I mean, um, so so it'd be interesting to see. And I I do hope that they kind of have to sit down and have this whole, you know, kind of tell all situation, because I think it's, it's a, it's an important thing to do. And I think it can be kind of like a building block for, for growth, for, for, uh, for everybody involved. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that's, that's probably the best, the best route to go right now. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we come back from this, our first break, um, I may be shooting the first shots in another galactic war, um, but stick around. All right, we are here for this week's Byword. And so a couple of weeks ago, we went um, and had an episode of of characters that were under the radar, that deserved a lot more love, that were kind of out of publication of the big two, um, and and just underrated and underrepresented characters that we love and more people should be checking out. This is the exact opposite of that episode. 
this is characters that we have had enough of. These are three characters apiece that were saying enough already. So we each have our three. Um, Dave, your your list is pretty in line with mine, and your three are choices that I could have easily made myself. But first up, uh, a lot of people see you as a DC guy, so they may be surprised by this. Yeah, you know, I, I really, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Batman is way overrated, and, and that is in about two different ways. That is both in-universe in the DCU, uh, and then uh, it's also on a publishing level. Um, what we've ended up with is that the vast, almost almost half now, or slightly over half of the entire output of DC Comics features Batman, um, to the great chagrin of many fans who obviously want to see um more character spotlight at dc much like marvel has an incredibly deep uh character roster uh and so many of these characters don't get a chance to shine they don't even get a mini series much less an ongoing or a spot on a team and what we've ended up with is a situation where Batman has become this proven moneymaker, particularly because he's been spotlighted many times outside of the comic books and in movies and cartoons and the like. And instead of taking risks, uh, the very risk-averse business people that sit atop all this whole situation, you know, Warner and all that, um, are basically saying just throw out the proven moneymaker. Uh, I saw a tweet uh, last week from uh, writer Jimmy Palmiotti who said that he's spoken to some um, comic shop owners that pre-orders for Batman comic books were being canceled by fans who are just kind of getting Batman fatigue because it seems to be like the number one thing that DC is putting out. There is just no variety there. Uh, In-universe, I would also argue that Batman is vastly overrated. He has been built up by various... um, writers to be almost you know godlike i mean there's a reason that people refer to him as the bat god occasionally you know with sufficiently prep time batman can take out dark side you know and this sort of um pushing of batman into these almost mythic levels has made things increasingly um bland and unrealistic within his own books because if the man can take out dark side what's the big deal with the joker you know or what's the big deal with everyday street crime why isn't gotham city an utter utopia at this point if batman is basically undefeatable and unbeatable and and so dc comics has kind of written themselves into a corner creatively and business-wise um and unless they're willing to take some chances with both um Batman is going to develop into um, a liability rather than an asset, uh, both in universe and on the publishing side. And I'm saying this as a Batman fan. I'm saying this as somebody who, you know, one of the main reasons I got into comic books besides Superman the movie with, with Chris Reeve was Batman the Animated Series. But at this point, it's it's just reached ridiculous levels, Chris. Yeah, and I would, I, I almost put... Um you know, Peter Parker, Spider-Man on the same level of, of enough is just enough. And like, you know, Peter Parker is my all time favorite superhero, but I think Marvel does a little bit better job of threading the needle with that than DC does. Um, and you know, it's funny because, uh, one of my eighth grade classes, uh, we can become easily distracted, especially now that, um, if you check our social media feed, you can see that I've taken all my physical comics and put them in the back of the classroom. So that's always a conversation piece now. Um, but someone said the the two words that make my my rage just go into, you know, the nth degree. And they said prep time. And one of my students and I made contact uh, eye contact across the room and and you know, it was it was a good discussion about how enough, you know, we've had enough of that. I mean, it we for God's sake, we have a quote-unquote flash movie and we we, you know the the big news coming out of that is that we've got more batmen than we know what to do with um you know it was we did a kind of like a live chat um in one of my group chats uh, with the last fandom for the you know pretty much the entire event and it was just like uh, are they going to do anything else you know and uh, you know besides bat centric content um and you know, you've got particularly. I think the Wonder Family is you know, 
starkly underserved. Um, so I'm glad to see like Trial of the Amazons coming. I'm glad to see Nubia getting her own book um, and a little bit of love there. But yeah, it is overwhelmingly like it's almost like the cape and the cow are kind of hovering over all of the other characters in the universe. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, dialing back a little bit on the Batman would also make make him a little more special again. You know, you only have a couple of Batman books that that's going to make those books all the more special. It feels like you're kind of just um, spreading out the love, you know, like if you had only two Batman books, I bet you the sales on those two books would be, you know, much, much higher than what they are right now. But I also I also think, um, you know, and I think we agree on this as well, is some of the supporting characters in the Bat family are far more compelling and interesting as characters. And I feel that way with, with spider characters as well. I think, um, you know, the lifelong fan of Peter that I've been, I think Ben's story right now is much more interesting than Peter's and miles by a good margin is probably the most interesting, um, you know, potential character growth wise storytelling wise, right now and so i'm i'm doing a, i'm enjoying a much more peter and ben stories than i or excuse me uh miles and ben stories than i am peter stories right now and i think a lot of that holds true with batman you're exactly right i'm uh, i'm reading batgirls right now um which is something i much prefer over the, the the regular batman books so because those characters are really um you know they've they've always been favorites of mine and it's a really interesting um, setup that they got going right now and a really interesting interpretation of those characters so um when you have a, a character as well worn as batman you know at some point you start running out of interesting things to do with the guy all right chris uh i'm, I'm not looking forward to this discussion <laughs> but 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 go ahead and hit me my man all right so your your prep time your your pandora's box of two words is probably expanded universe um but yeah i think luke skywalker is probably one of the most overrated characters in all of the nerd world um now that being said i don't have any experience in the expanded universe and the novels but for the people i think the the outpouring and the reaction to this character are are probably what makes him at the top of my list for this um no matter your thoughts and feelings on the last jedi we are very well chronicled on how we feel about that movie how we differ uh and how we agree but the the just like the outpouring of toxicity of nerd bros that that consider themselves to be the authoritative um like idea of of what luke skywalker would do in this situation and that situation most of whom did not read the novels they only saw those three movies and that was enough for them to know exactly what luke skywalker do would do in this or any situation and another reason that i think he's overrated is of the the big three in that uh original trilogy He's the least compelling to me. Yes, he has the cool aspects of using the force and having a lightsaber like every kid grows up wanting that. But for me, of those three, he is far and away the least compelling. Um, I think Leia is much more interesting of a character, you know, as a strong female lead uh, having to deal with, you know, the idea of being a statesperson of, you know, coming from you know, a diplomatic background into a general being the lead general um, Han Solo. I mean, like he's probably the greatest creation in the star Wars universe. He's one of my all time favorite characters and all of nerddom. And so combination of not a lot of meat on the bone when it comes to you know, comparison to the other two of the big three. Uh, and then just the, what has unfortunately inspired a lot of idiots online when it comes to Luke Skywalker. So not my favorite character. I say this with all the love in my heart for you, Chris. You. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so here's what it comes down to in a lot of ways. Number one, I I refuse to blame um, 
the character of Luke Skywalker for the toxicity of the dude bros, much more, much less that I cannot, you know, blame the character of Batman for the toxicity of the Snyder bros, uh, who are just crazy about Ben Affleck's portrayal, not really Ben Affleck's fault. Um, you know, you make a, a compelling point, I think, really, when you're talking about how, how much more of an interesting character Leia is and could have been um, if the, the trilogy would have focused more on her. Um, as far as Luke Skywalker in the original trilogy, what you're getting there is sort of that traditional mythic hero's journey. Um, and on that level, I think he works incredibly well. And he com- he was very compelling to me from the word go. You know, a, a father that he never knew, the only family that he knows dead. He's thrust into this rebellion. He has to learn to become something more than he is. The, the arc in the original trilogy, right down to his final temptation in Return of the Jedi, is absolutely compelling. And I adore him for that. That whole, you know, that even that moment when he finally outright rejects the dark side and throws his lightsaber away and leaves himself defenseless in front of the Emperor. I mean, dude's got cojones. Um, but what it comes down to with, I think, where a lot of current fans fall, and I think this is probably kind of where you fall as well, is the original trilogy gives you the beginning of his journey. It it gives you, here's how Luke Skywalker makes himself a Jedi. And then we skip all of his Jedi-ness, and we, we fall onto, and this is how his story ends. And so when you reach that end point, um, it is a story of failure. You know, he repeated the, the the mistakes of the past. He he tried to train new Jedi. He trained somebody who turned to the dark side and destroyed the Jedi again. It's like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi part two. This is a function of one of my main critiques, actually, with the sequel trilogy, is that instead of trying to tread new ground, uh, it, it basically becomes a rehash in a lot of ways of the original trilogy, right down to, oh, wait, Palpatine is back. I don't know how he did it, but here he is. Um, is That's really, I, I put that squarely at the feet of Disney. Um, I, I have said before that I think there are redeeming qualities to The Last Jedi, and there are things about it that I like. But putting luke skywalker as this ultimate failure in the long run without showing any of the journey in between in any way shape or form um i think does the character a disservice and yes i am one of those expanded universe guys i've said this many times um star wars wasn't a thing through the 90s there was no star wars except for the books and i got to know um, a post-return of the Jedi Luke Skywalker through those novels. And he is, you know, he goes from, from you know, this is, the, this is how he becomes a Jedi to this is the kind of Jedi he is. And he is so significantly different as a Jedi in, in the expanded universe from what came before um, what we ultimately saw in the prequels. That he is just such a rich and compelling character, you know, from, from the way he finds love to the way he tries to uh navigate being more than just a warrior but also like you know a diplomat and somebody that people can turn to for jedi advice to how he you know becomes a master how he overcomes uh having a student try to turn to the dark side and how he does basically what he did with darth vader and brings his student back from the edge too rather than you know sneaking in his house and trying to maybe kill him um all of those things make him just one of the most compelling characters to me. So I understand why uh, people like like you, Chris, who kind of see the beginning of the journey and then the end of the journey and have no context for anything in between, might feel like this about Luke Skywalker. My feelings for this character run really deep, not just because I found his arc in the, in the original trilogy compelling, but because I feel like I got to know him as a character post Return of the Jedi, very well before, you know, the Last Jedi ever came along, and and so to me, Luke Skywalker is deeply compelling. So I will respectfully disagree <laughs> with you. Uh, it's funny because I'm looking at the Heir to the Empire novels and those 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 books that you lent me like three or four years ago. I still have not tapped them in. They're look. I'm looking at them right now on my bookshelf. So maybe I finally tap in when I'm not reading hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comic books. Um, but I will say also, I think the reason, one of the primary reasons that the the prequels were such a letdown 
is for you know for all of us the original trilogy was this introduction into the jedi way and for me i love like expansive imagination when it comes to character creation like in video games if i can customize my character oh my god like it's the coolest thing it's what i love about you know things like fallout or you know other games like that where you can customize your character to the nth degree and just make it your individual thing red dead online you can create your own freaking cowboy um and so just seeing that world open up as opposed to one jedi one lightsaber one lightsaber color one outfit and then seeing this whole expansive world and then sure just to be such a dud i think that was such a disappointing thing so um you know just seeing that much more expanded idea on what it means to be a jedi and having more than one opinion on that i think that was that was probably why i lean that way as well yeah and and this is again this is something you you get in a lot of ways in in the expanded universe. I mean, there's even an extension, extensive discussion about like, you know, the the notion of no attachments and whether that is something a Jedi, you know, should even do. And ultimately, like the the new Jedi Order that you know uh, Luke Skywalker builds in the expanded universe rejects that and and encourages attachment. And I mean, Luke Luke has a son, you know, and and how how he tries to raise that son is even absolutely fascinating. In a lot of ways, uh the expanded universe story of Luke Skywalker is kind of what you and I were always talking about uh with Peter Parker. He is allowed to grow up. He's allowed to mm-hmm. grow old. He's allowed to get married. He has kids. He 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 gains and loses just like, you know, you know real life is. And you know, they never, they expanded the universe for reasons that I, I don't quite comprehend. I mean, they could have kept these characters young forever and just keep going. They actually aged them up and you get to see, you know, old grumpy Han Solo and stuff. Um, even way before, um, you know, the, the, the Force Awakens came along. And it, it's, there There are duds in the expanded universe as there are duds in, in many comic book stories and the like. But there are such high points, such soaring high points that, uh, you know, I mean, to the point where stuff that was very clearly expanded universe is like slowly being introduced by by Disney into its own continuity because it's just such fan favorite stuff. So I, you know, I really encourage you to read at the very least the 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 heir to the Empire trilogy and get a sense for you know this is Luke Skywalker five years on. You know, th- right. this is the kind of Jedi that he tried to make himself. It's it's an absolutely fascinating uh, trilogy. It might be, it would definitely be an interesting thing to revisit when I finally sit down and do read it. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely a, a byword episode. Okay, so now that we got the icky disagreement out of the way, um, another character that we will like alley oop dunk on. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to make this very brief because I have a feeling that you're probably, uh, you probably have a lot more to say, but you know, I'm about over Venom in about every way, shape and form. Despite the fact that writers continuously try to make him something new or different or interesting, Venom you know, is a Spider-Man villain that was way overused. The concept of, of symbiotes was way overused to the point that it was became sort of an ad nauseum thing. Everybody is symbiote. Everybody has one, you know. it's it's. I'm tired of it. And it doesn't help that the movie adaptations to me were, you know, utter dreck anyways. So I have no love for those either. And I'm just sick and tired of Venom. And the idea that people keep saying that Andrew Garfield should pop up in the third Venom movie and reprise Spider-Man, like, like, screw that. Give the man a good movie. That's what we wanted, right? A good movie for Andrew Garfield. Don't put him in Venom because those movies suck. Yeah, I'm tired of Venom in about every way, shape, or form. To the point where, like, there was, like, a big crossover a little while back that was supposed to be really good, and I didn't even touch it because it was Venom-related. Like, I am just over Venom, period. <laughs> yeah, symbiotes have never done it for me. I think I think that that Venom and the entire idea of symbiotes is like an encapsulation of the time in which it was created, that late 80s, early 90s time period, like metal rock, like ugh, too tight t-shirts and it's 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 just not my vibe it's something i've never been interested in i've never never looked at a venom story and be like you know this is great this is i absolutely love this i've never been interested in it in the least i don't get it i don't get the appeal it's i guess we're just not the demographic dave 
And that's very possible. I mean, I will say that like the original alien suit saga, you know, the whole yeah. like he has to separate himself from that and all that, even like the ultimate version of that. Both of those things are really interesting to me. But as soon as he as this, you know, the suit bonds with somebody else and becomes this one note, we hate Spider-Man, you know, yeah. and, and even and even when they try to reinvent him with stuff like, you know, Agent Venom and stuff, it kind of feels like they're constantly just trying to make something work that was ultimately designed for a one-off story. Yeah. And they keep trying to get more and more mileage out of it. It's really funny to me because I was one of, um, I was actually a big fan of Ben Riley, even though I wasn't the biggest fan of the Clone Saga. And one of the things I always said is, you know, if Spider-Man is the street level friendly neighborhood hero, the way that you have a Ben Riley character is by making him something completely different. How about you make him, you know, an, a, a, an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something, have like secret agent Spider-Man stories with Ben Riley. You know, there's all these different things you could have done with him. And it just kind of makes me sad that that's ultimately something that they ended up throwing on Venom of all people. Yeah. When I think when I think Ben Riley would have been a much better character in that space. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, now he's even stealing my boys, you know, potential storyline so i'm 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 just i'm just over venom man i know and it's it's heartbreaking too because like they're the the team of writers that is on there now is is you know al ewing who i think the world of and and is probably my favorite writer out there right now and then rom v who's written stuff that i absolutely love as well and they're you know tag taming this venom book and i'm like god i wish i was interested and i still can't bring myself to read the book yeah that's exactly right man all right. Well, uh, so so this next one is interesting too because I really am I'm interested to hear your take on your next overrated character. Okay, so I like Deadpool in doses, and um, apologies to previous guest friend of the show, Fabian Nicieza. Um But Deadpool is just not for me. I think it's 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 especially as a teacher. Um, Deadpool has become the patron saint of kids who uh, act up in class and call their mother by their first name. Um, it, it's just like, I, I enjoy Deadpool in doses, but this whole like, I, the whole vibe just does not fit for me. I will say that some of the X-Men Unlimited issues that Fabian himself is writing have been much better than what I've seen in other iterations of the character, but just like the whole thing, it's just not my vibe. And it's crazy because I'm a huge Ryan Reynolds fan and I watched the first movie and enjoyed it a a decent amount, but I don't know. There's just something that like, it just screams overrated to me and all this love for the character. And I just don't, I just don't see it. Uh, I I don't know. I, I should like Deadpool more than I do. There's just something inexplicable that I don't, and it just does not appeal to me. There's, I think there's probably a little bit too much wink, wink, nudge, nudge for me that I, I come to, and I'm realizing this live right now, I think I come to comics and, you know, nerd media for an escapism, and I want to be in completely immersed in the story, and I think some of that fourth wall stuff kind of takes me out and kind of ruins the experience. Maybe that's it. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I will freely admit that I have not read a whole lot of Deadpool comic books. Uh, I com- I almost completely come to him from the Ryan Reynolds movies. And, you know, I'm going to freely admit I'm, I'm sort of a Ryan Reynolds fan from even the early days. Uh, you know, as, as, as filthy and weird as it is, and even as problematic in, in some of the stuff by modern standards, um, I, I thought Van Wilder was one of the absolute funniest movies I've ever seen in my life. Just like that, that movie did not give a crap and, and was absolutely hilarious for it. And so seeing, you know, Van Wilder become Deadpool, it just, it just works for me, you know? So I love the movies. I love, I love Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. I, I do unapologetically. Um, but I don't have the, the context, I think, to yeah. really make a call about the comic books because I have not read any actual Deadpool comic books. So I think that might be something I'm going to have to rectify after I'm through my Brian Michael Bendis um, Avengers read through that I'm doing right now. I just, I don't, I need some context for this character, I think, Chris. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair assessment and and maybe I do as well. I know Kelly Thompson um, has written a much acclaimed version of the character. So I might check that out because I love her work uh, as well. 
But um, yeah, when you say oh, Ryan, when you, when you say Ryan Reynolds, I immediately think of my one of my all time favorite comedies, The Proposal with Sandra Bullock. Uh, oh, I love that. Oh, movie. my God. Uh, Betty White, the late marvelous Betty White as the grandma and that scene where she's singing Get Low by Lil John and the East Side Boys around the campfire commuting <laughs> with the great spirits is, is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um there's just so much go watch the proposal it's one of the all-time funniest movies and most underrated movies ever i'm gonna i'm gonna freely admit i always had kind of this very very weird dream casting where i thought betty white would be so fun to play against type and be like granny goodness uh <laughs> one, like you know working for dark side in a dc movie I, I i would have absolutely adored like betty white granny goodness that would have been so fun to see her play against type oh yeah Oh man, yeah, that's it's so much, so so much greatness. I love Betty White. Rest in peace forever. All right, so Dave, your third and final character. Um, you might you might think I feel differently, but I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, uh, another one that I'm kind of over is Wolverine, and, and and there's a whole list of reasons for that. But I think what it comes right down to is that Wolverine has become, in a lot of ways, Marvel's Batman. Um. A lot of the X-Men movies ended up not being X-Men movies so much as there were Wolverine movies featuring the X-Men. We had to get a cartoon that you just made me watch called Wolverine and the X-Men <laughs> where he takes lead there too. And when you open up a comic book, there's a usually, a, you know, in the, in the superhero-oriented eras of X-Men that I have dipped my toes into, there seems to be just a whole lot of Wolverine. And, and the problem is that the character, you know, for all... Um, for, for all it, the great acclaim that Wolverine has received from comic book fans, he is just basically your standard amnesiac for most of his existence. You know how many I've lost my memories and I'm trying to figure out who I am characters have existed in, in nerd media over the years. I don't think I can even count them with all my fingers and toes. Um, so I'm, I'm baffled by the absolute through-the-roof love that Wolverine gets. You know, I've mentioned I'm kind of on a big Brian Michael Bendis Avengers read-through, going, you know, through New Avengers, Avengers, Mighty Avengers, all those various Avengers books that he was writing all at the same time when, you know, the title was sort of going through a renaissance under his leadership. And he, he makes the decision to basically say, okay, from, I'm going to try to have a whole bunch of Avengers that are just characters that are really popular rather than building a proper team. And lo and behold, there's Wolverine on the Avengers. And it makes absolutely zilch sense, you know, as much as, he, as you know, they're trying to justify it in the writing. Like, th this is a character, especially at that time. I mean, this was post-House of M when the mutant population was basically decimated and and they were like really super persecuted and everything. And here's Wolverine. And he's like, yeah, I'm on the Avengers. Like, you know, the premier superhero team that like has press conferences and stuff, you know. And although some of the character interactions ended up interesting, he just feels he just feels out of place. Um, but but that's one of the things that Marvel has done is, is very much like DC is pushing, you know, Batman really, really powerfully. Uh, Marvel keeps popping Wolverine and everything. And what's the big rumor about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness that's been making its rounds on social media right now? That Hugh Jackman is going to pop up as an alternate version of Wolverine in a cameo because that's the best thing we can think of. More Wolverine. And I'm like, you know, dude, no no thanks. I'm I'm good. I'm good over here. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the Batman of of the mutants, at least, um, if not Marvel as a whole. But, um, you know, in, in the same way that Wolverine, Logan is the least compelling of that entire family. You know, you look at Laura, uh, who's a much more interesting character. You look at his son, Doc, and Akihiro, who's a much more compelling character. And then one of the greatest characters in all of comicdom, um, Scout, a.k.a. Gabrielle, uh, Gabby Kinney. Um, so like I've, I've, I've often seen people pitch the idea of like a Wolverine family book and like where they all just like have to deal with, you know, their dad issues and like, he has to like finally be a father to all these kids. So that's, that's a very, very interesting thing. 
an, an idea, but he's the least compelling. And I would, and I would, pro- and I would probably read that because yeah. that's a compelling setup. Other than I'm the best at what I do, yeah. I'm a loner who hangs out with forty other mutants right. minimum. You know, like I have a gruff voice and drink a lot of beer, and I don't remember stuff. Like it's just it's it's become very one note, man. Yeah, Ash Ash from X of Words put it perfectly in a recent episode of of that podcast. He said, um, "Logan, you just uh, have this." A Wikipedia entry on masculinity, like that's Logan in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, like we we get it, like we get it, bro. Um, but yeah, so like for all intents and purposes, he has two solo titles right now. He have the Wolf Green book, and X Force has been kind of like this pseudo solo book as well. And now he's got this event, X Lives of Wolverine and X Deaths of Wolverine. It's it's a lot, you know, for a team up book like the X Men, for him to have all these titles centered around just him is 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 underwhelming, um, you know. And and I've liked the content is for the most part. It's just it's just a lot centered around one character when you know there's much more interesting characters right there next to him. Yeah, can we just like replace one of those Wolverine books with like a Dazzler book? <laughs> X, X lives oh, of no. Dazzler and X deaths of Dazzler. Oh no, not Dazzler. <laughs> I will say, if you're reading works by Bendis of that era, I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, his X-Men run. I think, um, I, I specifically think towards uh, the, his Uncanny in 2014. It's Scott-centric and where Cyclops crossed over from, really crossed over from being the do-gooder Boy Scout into i think we talked about this on the last episode into like this revolutionary it's coming out of you know um mutant messiah and all these things but like bendis writing x-men and like we're on the run we're the most persecuted minority in all of the marvel universe and what do we do just to save so he kind of becomes this like proto kind of magneto you have the same imagery magneto was right cyclops was right Bendis writing Cyclops is one of my favorite things in all of comics. So he also does like several other concurrent titles, like all new X-Men and all this stuff. But Bendis writing Cyclops is chef's kiss. Mm, I'll have to take a look at that. All right. So uh, we, we couldn't completely avoid the mutant world as seen by Chris. So tell me who you think is most overrated in the world of mutants. Ugh, and, and so many of my mutant friends are, are going to agree with me on this. But Charles Xavier, we've had enough of him. Like, you know, a lot of a lot of people just like that are tangential kind of fans of the x-men would be like oh charles xavier look at this haven that he's created for mutants and he's got a school for gifted youngsters i don't know what that voice was but um yeah charles xavier is a gaslighting manipulative mastermind of just being a bot to use the term of the day yeah so charles xavier is not it for me i mean like you see like the nomenclature xavier institute and all this stuff and if you read um you know extensive you read enough in in x-men comics you'll realize that charles xavier is is not it uh and that you know simply it's it's the easiest thing to go to whether it's nostalgia from the animated series or or what have you um but yeah charles xavier like is like he's so manipulative and he does like this whole thing of like coexisting with humankind like to the nth degree though even though like they're literally trying to kill you um you know here recently you know since like the soft reboot of of the dawn of x and the krakoa era it's been a little bit better but he's still doing too much and and still manipulative and He's he's traded one form of gaslighting for another of, you know, sending out children, marching out children soldiers to die in battle on behalf of humankind, you know, towards, you know, just keeping state secrets and all this stuff on Krakoa. So there's Charles Xavier is not it and and uh, is highly overrated. This, I have I have a question because you know do gooder Charles Xavier I've seen fifty million times but I I don't think I've read enough X Men to see sort of the the gaslighting manipulator side of him 
is there are there writers that really lean into that because you know i know you're sitting over there saying that's overrated blah 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 but i think like sort of a, a prick charles xavier would be really really refreshing from how he's always been portrayed in external media like in in you know the animated series and right. even in 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 the movies like Charles Xavier manipulative prick is like it would be like right up there in, a, in an interpretation of that character that I, I think I could get into. I don't know that there's like an overt one like that, but it's just like this subliminal and maybe it's even like an unconscious or subconscious thing by writers like throughout the 90s in particular, like, um, you know, you have, of course, Onslaught where his psyche combines with that of Magneto's and becomes this crazy entity or whatever but like it's it's a lot of subliminal kind of under the radar type stuff so the two boyfriends had a kid is what you're telling me (laughs) yeah in their mind (laughs) oh my god um i don't know what to say to that that's that's a fascinating take i've not i've not read onslaught but yeah i think if a writer it's not it's not good it's not good please it's not a nerd commendation it is not good I think if a writer would decide to like really lean into that aspect of Charles Xavier and like overtly say, dude's a manipulator, dude's kind of a prick, you know, he he's he's a you know on the side of the good guys, but he's still just kind of a you know a, a quote unquote. I think I think I would be there for that just because it's so different from how people usually portray him. Like like let's let's do that, man. Maybe then he wouldn't feel overrated. Well, I, I, you you caused this into memory. A lot of a lot of the stuff that makes me feel uncomfortable about him, and and Jean Grey gets into this a lot. A lot of the the use of telepathy, of like mind wiping and stuff, and that shows up in a char- a, a character property that uh, we shall not be named. Um, but you know, just the idea of using your powers to either influences people's decision making or just mind wiping them all together. That shows up a lot here um throughout the history but specifically um chip zadarsky's x-men fantastic four there's some interesting back and forth between reed richards and charles of like who's the master manipulator you know reed you know is a half the time throughout his history as well so it's just like who's the bigger um (laughs) (laughs) metaphorically metaphorically and perhaps literally (laughs) i am gonna have so much fun with the sensor button in this episode (laughs) But yeah, so yeah, so the uh, the X Men Fantastic Four that Chip Zdarsky recently wrote was 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 one that comes to mind. Yeah, so I, I, clearly some writers are picking up on this and are trying to lean into it. But like a like a full X Men run of like prick Charles Xavier. I, that's that's what I want to read, man. Now now you got me fascinated. <laughs> All right, that wraps up our byword big talk for this week of the overrated characters in the nerd world. Who is overrated at getting too much love in your opinion? Be sure to hit us up on social media on Instagram and Twitter at NerdByWord or individually that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris. But when we come back from this, our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we're back for everybody's favorite segment, the tiramisu at the end of the meal. You know it as... All right, Dave, you got some Star Trek to nerd commend to me. I'm all in. Yeah, I think this is this is a different kind of Star Trek. So, you know, I've read a lot of the um, the oral history, those massive oral history books of, of Star Trek, which was absolutely fascinating. But it reminded me that there was a book I had when I was uh, younger, still living in Germany, that I absolutely adored. And I ended up seeking it out again. It's currently out of print. So you'd probably have to pick up a used copy somewhere if you're into it. But the book is uh, Star Trek Phase 2, The Lost Series by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. Now, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know a thing or two about Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. They have written a number of really, really good Star Trek books. They also collaborated with William Shatner on his Shatnerverse books of this is what would happen if Captain Kirk came back to life after um, you know Star Trek Generations. They're, they're really, really solid uh, uh, writers. And here they wrote a nonfiction book that uh, purports to be the untold story behind the Star Trek television series that almost was. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read you uh, a little from the back of the book here. So few people realize how close Star Trek Phase Two, a footnote in Star Trek history, came to full-scale production. All of the actors were signed except for Leonard Nimoy, 
whose Spock character would have been replaced by a young Vulcan named Zahn. Sets and props were designed and constructed. New models, including a never-seen version of the USS Enterprise, were built. A special effects company was hired, and scripts were written. However, the plans for the network were cancelled, and Paramount Pictures decided to shift gears to feature film production, shutting down the television series. The result of this decision was Star Trek The Motion Picture. Star Trek Phase II, The Lost Series, is the story of the missing chapter in the Star Trek saga, including full behind-the-series information on the show that almost but didn't happen. Full of never-before-seen-color artwork, storyboards, blueprints, technical information, and photos, this book reveals the vision behind Gene Roddenberry's lost glimpse of the future. I absolutely adore this book, man. Um... And it is so informative, even of Star Trek, the motion picture, and why it is kind of a a, a dud when it comes to Star Trek movies. Um, so this series was originally supposed to be sort of an anchor series for a new Paramount network before we ever got, you know, UPN, which ultimately UPN went on to, uh, you know, be the the place where Star Trek Voyager aired before it was combined with. Uh, the WB network to become the CW. So there's like a really long convoluted history there. But when they decided not to have this new network, they canceled the series. So what you get in this book is sort of, first of all, a, 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 um, a analysis of what the series was supposed to be. You get into like set construction, screen tests, how the casting was done. You get character breakdowns and then the absolutely cream of the crop besides the color pictures of the new enterprise is that you get all 13 scripts that were written for the series and so you get like such cool scripts that uh, have never been seen before that are like basically lost adventures of of the enterprise i absolutely adore this book i was fascinated by it when i was a kid and rereading it i'm still fascinated by this basically alternate history uh, of star trek and to me it it would almost be cool if if modified in modified in some way some of these uh, stories would exist sort of in in Star Trek canon between the end of the original series and the beginning of the movies because there is some interesting stuff in there even though the series would have not featured Leonard Nimoy we would have had sort of a replacement Vulcan there's still some really interesting science fiction stuff going on here and and so I highly recommend this book for everybody who loves Star Trek yeah man so it's like a Star Trek what if series so this is this is fascinating I love the original series I often put it on at night just to like feel almost at home I think I, I made that like our chicken soup for the soul uh, episode but yeah I'm definitely gonna have to check this one out yeah yeah I think you're gonna really enjoy it man especially if you're a fan of the original series seeing you know how it would have been to bring it back with this real 70s aesthetic on television I, I think you're gonna be into this man all right, Chris, so you have a nerd commendation that I have to completely and utterly echo because this sucker was awesome. What have you got? Oh, man. Jed McKay's Black Cat. All of it. All of it. Okay, so there's two volumes. Um, one that started, I believe, in 2019, and then a second volume that started with The King in Black. Um, I think that's the event that you referenced uh, earlier on in the episode that was was pretty good for me. Um I enjoyed in spite of the symbioteness, but um, that just wrapped up and then ended with the giant size black cat infinity score back in November. And then we were so blessed this week with um, Mary Jane and black cat beyond, which is kind of like uh, almost like a backup story to what's happening in amazing Spider-Man right now. But Jed McKay is quickly up there now with Al Ewing is like one of my favorite writers and, and just read everything about his black cat. Um, typically collaborating with CF via on art. I love everything about this character. Like since her inception in the eighties has, has always been neck and neck with, with Mary Jane as like my favorite to be um, Peter's romantic partner. I think the chemistry between the two of them, the should they, should they not, uh, there's a lot of course like bat cat vibes. A lot of people make those, those correlations, but just leaning into the, the charm of the character, the 
the ability to just nail this characterization by McKay and just make her such an interesting character, this rogue with a heart of gold or diamond, I should say, like she's like eating cheap takeout with like a glass of champagne for breakfast. Like it's so good. Everything about this series is just perfect. And like, so introducing like this cosmic scale to a street level character like this, you know, is just fascinating to me and it's just masterfully done. And I'd wager that the giant size uh, finale to this was, was probably the most rewarding of them all. And then um, this week's issue of Mary Jane and black cat, like my two favorite love interests for Peter, like, together teaming up in an issue to save their guy and like just the back and forth between the two of them was just absolutely a joy to read and far and away my highlight of the week when it comes to reading comics so i've not actually read any of the black hat solo series but based on your recommendation now i totally will i did read that uh, mary jane and black hat story though and i absolutely loved it much like the side story with aunt may and dr octopus it was just a really standout issue um and and sort of these these weird little combination team-ups that they're doing right now with with beyond uh, I, you know, I'm just going to tell you, man, I'm dreading beyond ending because it's been so good from the main story to the little side stories and one shots. I absolutely adore this era uh, of Spider-Man right now and seeing it come to an end soon is just depressing. Yeah, I'd also, um, I'm not sure what what was the issue, but this week's issue of ASM McKay wrote as well. And it was like, so if I could fully cheat and just shoehorn another one in McKay wrote this past week's issue of ASM as well, where captain America and black cat are kind of getting, uh, whipping Peter into shape, getting him out of the bed. I love that. I loved that. It, It was so great. And just like the dichotomy of two completely different characters. And they hinted at it, the relationship between captain America and black cat in, uh, the first couple of issues of of the second volume of Black Cat, where they're taking on Newell, and and so like there's some some previous history there that's really really fascinating as well. But like seeing like these two characters that are very influential for Peter for v- very different reasons, of course. But like it's it's just funny like the chemistry on on page between all three of them is just absolutely fantastic. So go read everything Jed McKay writes. Basically, sounds like a strong nerd commendation, Chris. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you for coming along on this journey with us. As always, you can find our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio app, Amazon, or nerdbyword.com. And if you uh, want to hang out with us on social media, tell us your thoughts on today's episode or really any nerdy issue at or topic at all, please, please, please find us on social media and, and give us a shout out. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and that, that Nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.